Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. This week's scripture reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I suspect many of us have had the experience in our lives, or at least I would wager, of somebody speaking badly about us. Whether that's to our face, or even the more hurtful experience of having someone tell you the things that people are saying when you're not in the room or when your back is turned. Careless names, words, impressions, rumors that people share can be enough to push us over the edge and into a crater. These things hurt. And the Apostle Paul was no stranger to these things. One writer says this, Rifts and gaps open between people for all kinds of reasons. Those who once complimented now critique. Those who once thought well of you could scarcely be less charitable now. Paul knew what it felt like. And that can make reading 2 Corinthians a painful exercise at times. Paul had a good experience in the city of Corinth. 
The church he planted was full of people dear to his heart. And though the Corinthians were a feisty group loaded with potential problems, Paul loved them. And even after leaving Corinth, prayed for them every day. So how it must have hurt to learn that in Corinth his reputation had been shattered. After Paul's departure, some naysayers came to town and called Paul into question. They impugned Paul's credentials, claiming he had no right to call himself an apostle. They alleged that Paul was a money grubber and a charlatan whose motives were impure, and whose so-called gospel was just so much hogwash and heresy. So in this second letter to the Corinthians, Paul, with grit teeth sometimes, and through tears at others, has to defend himself. And at the conclusion of chapter 5, Paul's desire to clear his name combines with his effort to repeat the true gospel, resulting in a sublime, sublime passage of great power. The centerpiece is reconciliation. By grace alone, and because of Jesus, God reconciled himself to us. And the result of this cosmic reconciliation is that we now look at everything differently. We now look at everything and everyone through the lens of reconciliation. So let's talk about this lens of reconciliation and how that changes the way we see things. I once heard a speaker talk about his work with the parents of children with disabilities. And one of the first things he did, he said, was that with each family he encountered, he would give them a pair of glasses with lenses that helped them to see and experience the world through the eyes of their child. And the families were always moved and often to tears when they saw the world for the first time as their child saw the world, because it helped them to have compassion for them and to understand those children in a whole new way. Wouldn't it be great if we could have the kind of vision that enabled us to look at people all people, different people, difficult people, extra grace required people, our kids and our parents and our fellow church members, and even people who have hurt us, all with the kind of vision that produces compassion and understanding and empathy. Perhaps we need to clean or adjust our lenses from time to time, Paul suggests in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I find it very interesting that when Paul managed to get out of his own crater of depression, his own period of darkness so deep, which he describes in chapter 1 as being under a great pressure far beyond his ability to, to endure so that he despaired of life itself, that Paul decides to write to this church in Corinth, this group of believers whose treatment of him the rupture that in the relationship caused by the gossip and the slander and the insinuations and the cruel words, this rupture was partly responsible for Paul being in that dark place to begin with. And Paul does have friends in other places. Paul has other churches that were receptive to him in his ministry. Paul has reliable allies that he could count on and whose support could carry him through. And yet he decides to try again to repair his relationship with these believers that he loved and for whom he prayed. Instead of retreating to friendlier territory, Paul opts for the much harder road, the road of reconciliation. And he says this hard road of reconciliation begins with changing the way we see, changing our lenses, if you will. Now, one of the better known verses from 2 Corinthians occurs in chapter 5 here. It's indeed a verse that deserves to be well-known. Therefore, if anyone is, what anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. That's verse 17. 
And that is indeed good news. Paul declares that anyone who is in Christ has become something new. N.T. Wright shares his beautiful vision of what this phrase might mean. This is what he says. In verse 17, there is no verb leading us to say not just if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation, but rather if anyone is in Messiah, new creation. And he puts that in all caps. Every believing Messiah person, he says, is designated by God to be a small window through which one can glimpse the full sweep of God's new world, like someone viewing a vast landscape from a lattice window in a high tower. Look to and fro in this new land. Old things have passed away. Sin and death are gone. Corruption, decay, and sorrow have gone. Everything has become new. Get used to seeing that in your mind's eye. And then he says, look back to verse 16 and learn to see the world and everyone in it from Jesus onward as if it were in some way new. The new creation unveiled in the resurrection generates a new way of knowing. So as Wright points out there, this favorite verse of ours is even better understood when we consider it in light of the verses that are around it taking our cue from the ones that come just before and just after it. And the verse directly before this one, verse 16, uh, says this, and I'm going to read it from the message. We don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And Peterson's translation of those verses and the uh, quote I gave you from N.T. Wright capture that particular sentiment. That when we are in Christ, this changes the way that we see everything. It changes, first of all, the way we see Jesus, the Messiah. And then it changes the way we see each other and the world. And that renewed or even recreated sight is the beginning of what it means when we say anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start and is created new. When we are recreated, we begin to see the world in a different way. But maybe our lenses need cleaning from time to time because... The way that we see Jesus and the world and other people has not gotten any easier in the time since Paul wrote these words. So new creation begins with the way that we see Jesus Christ. Quite a long time ago, actually now, but I read a story by the popular Christian author Max Lucado. And in that, one of his books, one of his devotionals, he describes how he imagined Jesus first as a baby and then as a teenager. And he said he probably had typical teenage issues such as acne, And then in another place, Lucado talked about how he received a very irate letter in response to that particular devotional from a woman who insisted, loudly, but maybe if she was writing, it was just in all capitals, my Lord did not have pimples. It's a point of Christian belief that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. And helping people to see the humanity in Jesus was what Lucado was trying to do. And the temptation for us very often is to try and erase those human parts of Jesus and to only see the divine and the powerful when we look at Jesus. 
I can't count the number of times I've seen this on a social media. It's a slide with this caption. If anyone asks you what would Jesus do, remind him that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. One article that I read in response to that particular gem claimed that at that time, when that article was written, that had 109,000 shares on Facebook. But the article was written in 2014, so I expect it's received a good number since then. But the author of this article points out that that's actually a very misleading thing to say. That story, which you probably have heard of, comes from the second chapter of John's Gospel. But the whip that Jesus makes in that story was not actually used to chase people away, according to John. Instead, it was used to herd animals, sheep and cattle, John chapter 2, verse 15. And it was used to herd them out of the temple courts. And the significance of Jesus doing this is that by the end of John's story, Jesus is going to replace those animals who are destined to be sacrifices. And this author writes this, Up front, John has told us a bold portrait of this truth that comes uh, through in the first three chapters. The sacrifices commanded by Moses are driven away by Jesus, who has come to give himself as the final sacrifice, for he is the Lamb of God, whom God gives out of a deep love for the world. Beautiful, he says. And yet the only time I've heard Christians speak about Jesus' use of the whip, a symbol of God overturning the old covenant as Jesus overturned the tables, is to justify their outbursts, military policy, or philosophy of self-defense, which invites a question, he says. Why do we prefer the violent Jesus over one of our favorite theological truths? Why hold fast to a picture of savagery when a picture of grace is available? Why indeed do we like the picture of the violent Jesus when the theological center of the story is the cross, the ultimate triumph of nonviolence over violence? Why do we prefer a powerful and vengeful Jesus over a Jesus who is graceful? Why do we prefer a Jesus who had no human issues, clear skin all his life, than one that maybe went through puberty, that learned to walk? Why do we prefer Jesus with the whip to the Jesus on the cross? I suspect because it's easier to believe in triumph through might rather than triumph through suffering. Because it's easier to believe that God shows God's glory by trouncing all God's enemies. Jesus' own disciples fled the scene when he was arrested, partly out of fear, of course, but at least some people have suggested partly out of disappointment that Jesus being the Messiah didn't mean that he was going to lead them to military victory over Rome. Many more people are attracted to the image of Jesus riding on a horse, taking names and doling out punishment. Jesus on the cross seems to suggest defeat. It is shameful. It is weakness and suffering on full display. Who in their right mind would glorify a crucified king? Christians. That's who. And it turns out that this is not a modern phenomenon at all. Paul himself was facing just this kind of criticism, just this kind of pushback in the church in Corinth. Apostles, they said, should be strong and impressive. And so they gossiped behind Paul's back that he was weak and unimpressive. And in fact, those who said such things even called Paul's gospel into question, the message that Paul was preached. But Paul never wavers in his gospel 
He reminds this church over and over again that the Jesus we know is the one who is crucified, not the one who is riding to military victory. Paul writes this in his first letter to the Corinthians. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And he also writes the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Serving a crucified Messiah, declaring Jesus as Lord, was as difficult to grasp in the first century as it is for us today. But that is Paul's central message, spelled out in 2 Corinthians and many of his other letters, that we glimpse Jesus, full of power and glory, when he hangs on the cross. And once we can accept that, once we believe that, once we get it deep into our souls that we are named and claimed by the crucified one, that is where the power of God starts. One writer says this, The revelation of Jesus to Paul produced in him a crisis. Seeing the resurrected Lord has changed how Paul sees the world around him. Paul is now aware that God has invaded the world as he knows it. The old is passing away. The world that Paul knew is not there at all. The new has dawned. God is in the business of rectifying God's creation, and Paul has seen God in action. He cannot go back to life as normal. The distinctions that mattered in the old world, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, they do not matter in the new world. Because in this new world, God is reconciling all to God's self, regardless of gender, status, identity, or position. All are enemies, and all stand in need of reconciliation. So when we become made new in Christ, the very first thing that we change is the way that we see Jesus. And once we see Jesus Christ aright, once we have appreciated the power of the cross and taken the message of the cross to heart, it changes the way we see everything else and everyone else. Now in our society, in our world, we are, as one person puts it, obsessed with externals, with youth and beauty and accomplishments and credentials, productivity and profit. We are constantly tempted to judge our own worth and that of others according to a human point of view. We are tempted to view worldly success as a sign of God's favor and conversely to view weaknesses and suffering as a sign of God's absence or sometimes even a sign of God's punishment. But Paul reminds us that human standards of judgment count for nothing in God's eyes. The scandal of the cross is that God chooses vulnerability, weakness, suffering, and death in order to bring new life. Once Jesus taught that the most important commandment of all was to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think that Paul is saying the same kind of thing here in 2 Corinthians in just a slightly different way. In verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5, we read, All this comes from God, who settled the relationship between us and him, and then calls us to settle our relationships with one another. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering the forgiveness of sins. And God has given us the task of telling everyone what God is doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and to enter the work uh, and to enter into God's work of making things right between them. Which means, 
uh, and I'm returning to an author just quoted a bit earlier, we look at everyone and everything through the lens of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of reconciliation as we call others to believe in Jesus and so find themselves in good relationship with God. But it's not just about the vertical dimension between God and us. Being caught up in God's salvation changes everything on this human horizontal plane too. Once we are reconciled with God, that means that we also seek to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Love God, love people, the greatest commandment. And I believe it's because of this new way of seeing everyone that Paul was able to not give up on his relationship with this church, that he didn't hide behind the hurt that he'd received at their hands. He didn't hold on to the slander and the gossip, but instead he pressed on to try and repair the relationship with them. A little like when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Paul is so keenly aware of how he has been reconciled to God through Jesus the Messiah, the one on the cross, that he cannot bring himself quite to give up on this church, that he keeps trying to reconcile or restore friendly relations, because all this comes from God, he says, who settled the relationship between us and him, and that calls us to settle our relationships with one another. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, Our changed way of seeing Jesus changes the way we see everyone and everything else. It changes the way we deal with other people. We refuse to write them off as enemies, but we always seek, again from Paul, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with our neighbors and the people around us. Loving God means that we settle our relationships with one another because God started it when God took the steps to reconcile us through Jesus. And we can never forget that that reconciliation came at the cost of the cross that Jesus willingly paid. And so we spend our lives living that out with our fellow believers and our neighbors here on earth. In her 2 Corinthians commentary, Judith Deal offers a few questions to gauge just how we are doing on this front, just how we're seeing other people. Here's the question she asks. If we say that we are Christians, how do we look at the world around us? Do we see the world as politicians see it, as the media sees it? Do we have the same hopes and fears and anxieties as the non-Christians who live next door? Do we hurt where Jesus would hurt? The true Christian knows that God has changed his or her mind for good. It is irreversible. A transformed mind results in a new and different mindset for the person. New points of view, new feelings, new compassion for others, new heartaches, and a new concern for the world around us, she says. So how do you see the world? How do you see the people who you share the world with, friends and family and fellow believers and neighbors? Perhaps our lenses need a little cleaning today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear God, we thank you that through Jesus, you made it so that the world could be made right, could be reconciled to you. We ask that you would continue to transform our vision that we may see Jesus as we should, that we would see other people that you have placed in our lives as we should as well. Cleanse our vision, we pray, to see glimpses of the new creation in one another and in ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com.
This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. As we go this week, we ask you, Lord, that you would be gracious to give us a mind to meditate on you, eyes to behold you, ears to listen for your word, a heart to love you, and a life to proclaim you. Through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.